morning, everyone. I'm so glad you've joined us today. And uh, as you just heard, there certainly are a number of different opinions when it comes to the Bible, uh, from fiction to fairy tale to absolute truth. And this morning, we're in week six of this series titled Explore God. And we've been answering some big questions about God and the Christian faith. Uh, C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He said, if Christianity is false, it's of no importance. But if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And so if you're joining us for the first time this morning, and maybe you're one of those people, uh, you've got some questions. Or maybe you would even say that you are skeptical about all of this. First, I want you to know I'm really glad that you are with us. And I'm grateful that you would give us an hour of your time. We're going to do our best to spend that time well. But secondly, I want you to know that this would be a great series for you to listen through. All of our messages are available online on our podcast, as well as on our Facebook pages. You can access all of that through our website, genesischurch.me. And while those messages likely won't answer all of your questions, I think that they'll give you a clear picture of why Christians believe what they believe, and they'll give you some evidence to help you take a step of faith. Well, as I was preparing this message, a story came to my mind from my worship leading days. Uh, some of you know that I started at Genesis Church back in 2003 as the worship pastor. And yes, that does mean that there was a day when I was just as cool as Justin Tunmore. And uh, those days are now gone, but yes, there was a day. Well, in uh, 2004, it was Easter Sunday. We were planning for Easter. My friend Jill Miller... Uh, helped me by putting together a, a choir to sing along with our band that morning. Now, we were no more a choir kind of a church back then than we are now, but we thought, hey, it's Easter, it's something different, let's go for it. And so we picked out the closing song, and it was a, a high-energy song, heavy drums, driving guitars, and just this huge voice from the choir that Jill had put together, all to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. And, and the entire thing started with just my acoustic guitar. I strummed that first chord to give the choir the note that they needed to sing to make sure that they were going to be on key. And so there we were, ready to blow the roof off of the Arbitorium Banquet Hall. That's where we were meeting at the time. And uh, I gave the choir that opening chord, and they began to sing, and they sounded amazing for about four measures. Uh, that's when the band came in, playing in a completely different key than the one I had given to the choir. Uh, I had strummed the wrong chord. I had started them off wrong. And to say that what happened next was a train wreck would be an understatement. I would describe the sound uh, as a foghorn mixed with a cat fight mixed with a thousand garbage cans falling on concrete. And in fact, the sound was so bad that for a split second, I thought I might have triggered the second coming of Christ just so he could come down and tell me how badly I had messed up his big day. But after that service, Jill, the choir director, came up to me, and she was red with embarrassment, and she said, Ben, I am so sorry. I don't know what happened. And I realized she doesn't know it was my fault. And so I did what any self-respecting worship pastor would do, and I said, you know what, Jill, it's okay. You'll get it right next time. And uh, I, I just, I did. I let her take the fall. And uh, Jill, if you're watching today, I mean, I'm going to really miss your friendship. Uh, but here's the thing. In that moment, 
I proved to be totally unreliable. Everyone in that choir was counting on me to give them direction. They were trusting that what they heard from me was right and true, and they based what they did on what I had given them. And because I wasn't reliable, well, the result was chaos. And you know, a a lot of people look at this book, the Bible, uh, like it's an instrument in the wrong key. And they say, how can you believe that? The Bible has so many inconsistencies, and it's full of errors and contradictions, and and the stories in it are so far-fetched. Why in the world would you base your life on that? It's not reliable. And maybe you've heard those arguments. Maybe you've even thought them yourself. But I wonder if you've ever really studied the evidence. Some people will say things like, the Bible is full of contradictions, but when asked, they can't give a specific uh, instance where those contradictions might be. It's just something they've heard and repeated. And so what I want to do this morning is really to put the Bible on trial. I want to examine the evidence that we have of its reliability. But first, what is it? What is the Bible? Well, it's actually a collection of 66 different books separated into two testaments. And it was written in three different languages on three different continents by 40 different authors. And it was written over a span of more than a thousand years. And it contains poetry and history and letters and prophecy. And all of it was put together by God himself to communicate one overarching theme. And that theme is this. It's God's gracious offering of redemption to fallen mankind through his son, Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, this is the story of the Bible. But is the story reliable? That's the question we're asking today. And I want to start with what the Bible has to say about itself. Now, you might be objecting already, saying you can't prove that something is true by what it says about itself. But in any court of law, the defendant always gives an opening argument. He's always allowed to to plead his case. And so let's let the Bible do the same thing. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I want you to pay special attention there, special attention to the words God-breathed. That same breath that gives you and I life, God breathed that into the scriptures. And because of that, the scriptures themselves are given life. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we read that above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so while this book was written with human hands, it was inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit of God so that what is written in the Bible is quite literally the words of God. And then in Hebrews 4.12, we read that the word of God is active and alive, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. See, this isn't any ordinary book. These aren't just words on a page. No, these passages clearly show us that the Bible claims to be the word of God written by men who were guided by the Holy Spirit and it's alive and it's active even today. That's what the Bible says about itself. 
But what evidence do we have that the words in the Bible are reliable? Well, I want to give you four evidences this morning. This is not an exhaustive list, but for the time we have, I want to explore four evidences that the Bible is reliable. The first one is this. It's what we're going to call the manuscript evidence. And the manuscript evidence really addresses the question, is what we have today true to the original? Again, this book is thousands of years old. How could what we have today be even close to what was written back then? Well, one of the ways to determine the reliability of any ancient document is to examine the quality and the consistency of the copies that we have. And while we don't have any of the original New Testament manuscripts, there's still an incredible amount of evidence in the copies that we have for its accuracy and its reliability. To show you what I mean by that, uh, I want to look at some other ancient documents that are accepted as reliable today. First, let's look at, at Plato. Plato's writing, uh, his writings, the Tetra, Tetralogies, was written in 400 B.C., but we don't have that original. Uh, the earliest copies we have of it are from 800, 895 A.D. That's a time span of about 1,300 years from when it was originally written to the copies we have, and of those copies, we have 217. Another example, many of you will be familiar with Homer's Iliad, and Homer's Iliad was originally written around 800 B.C. The earliest copy of it that we have is from 400 B.C., so that's a span of 400 years between the original and the copies we have, and we have 1,800 of those copies. Now let's look at what we have for the New Testament, and let's just talk about the Greek manuscripts. The New Testament was written between 50 and 100 A.D. Again, it's not just one book written at one time. It's a number of books written over a span of time. The earliest copies that we have of the Greek manuscripts are from 130 A.D., and that's a time span of between 30 and 80 years, much shorter than either of these other two documents. And how many copies of that do we have? 5,838 of those copies. And when you look at, at those copies and you start to, to compare them, what you find is that they are incredibly consistent with one another. When you look at, at one copy next to the other, you find that they are very accurate to one another. That's three times the copies that we have uh, of Homer's Iliad. It's 26 times the copies of Plato's work. And Josh McDowell points out in his book, Evidence for Christianity, that no other ancient document even comes close to the manuscript evidence that we have for the New Testament. And so here's where that lands us. If we're going to accept the argument that the Bible cannot be reliable simply because of its age or because we don't have the original manuscripts, then we would have to hold all other ancient documents to that same scrutiny, and obviously that is just not the case. When it comes to the manuscript evidence, the Bible is extremely reliable. Well, let's keep moving, and let's look at our second piece of evidence this morning, and that's the archaeological evidence. This speaks to the argument that the Bible is full of errors. Has archaeology been able to show that the things spoken of in the Bible actually happened? Well, the answer to that question is an overwhelming yes. I want to give you just two examples this morning. First, about 30 years after Jesus died, a man named Luke wrote the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 27, Luke wrote that he and the apostle Paul were on a ship together sailing in the sea. 
and that they encountered a strong storm. Now, I want you to hear what Luke says they did. In Acts 27, verse 29, he writes that, Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. And then a couple of verses later, in verse 39, he says, When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach, where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. Okay? So just the summary of that, they, they dropped anchors in the middle of the night. There's this terrible storm, so they're just trying to hold their place. In the morning, they, they realize that there's a sandy beach up ahead, and so instead of hauling the anchors in, they just cut the ropes, and they left the anchors there in the sea, and they headed for the beach. Well, in his book titled The Lost Shipwreck of Paul, Robert Cornuke details his search for those four anchors. And he and his companions studied Luke's account here in Acts chapter 27, and they realized that what Luke was describing was now St. Thomas Bay in Malta. And so they went and they searched the area, and sure enough, just off the coast there, in 30 feet of water, they discovered four ancient Roman anchors, just as Luke had described. Here's a picture we have of, of one of the divers investigating one of those anchors and then a clearer picture of one of the anchors being hoisted up. Isn't that amazing? 2,000 years later, and the archaeological evidence was still there. Let me give you one other example uh, from John's Gospel. In John chapter 5, we read this. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And colonnades is just a fancy word for porches. Okay, This thing had five covered porches around it. John goes on to tell us that this is where Jesus healed a man. Some of you will remember that he asked the man, do you want to get well? That's the story that, that he's about to tell about Jesus. But until the 19th century, there was no further evidence that such a place as this ever existed. And for years, critics of the Bible questioned the reliability of John's gospel because, again, there is no such pool located near the Sheep Gate. Well, that all ended in the late 1800s when archaeologists uncovered a pool with two separate basins located near the Sheep Gate. Here's a picture of it. And what's even more interesting about this discovery is that because of its two separate basins and the way that it's arranged there on the land, it has five covered porches that would have been around it. Here's the point. The Bible is not a fairy tale. The Bible is a collection of real places, real people, and real events. As Norman Geisler points out in his book, When Skeptics Ask, he says there have been thousands of archaeological finds in the Middle East that support the picture in the biblical account, and all of them point to the reliability of the Bible. Let's look at a third piece of evidence, and we'll call this the prophetic evidence. The prophetic evidence really speaks to the argument that the Bible is full of inconsistencies. And did you know that the Old Testament contains over 300 prophecies about the coming Messiah? Let me highlight just a few of them, eight to be exact. The prophet Micah predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Hosea predicted that he would come out of Egypt. Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would minister in Galilee. Zechariah predicted that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. 
Isaiah also predicted the Messiah would be crucified with thieves. And by the way, uh, that was hundreds of years before crucifixion had even been invented. And then Isaiah predicted that once crucified, the Messiah would be buried in the tomb of a rich man. And David predicted that the Messiah would come back from the grave. Now, these are just eight of the over 300 Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. And all of these were given hundreds to a thousand years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And yet, every single one of those prophecies was fulfilled by Jesus and recorded in the gospel accounts. Josh McDowell points out that the odds of just those eight prophecies that I read being fulfilled in one person's lifetime is this number a number too big for me to get my head around and likely for you as well. That's 100 100 trillion, one in 100 trillion. That's the odds of just eight, just eight of the prophecies coming true in one person's lifetime. But Jesus didn't just fulfill eight prophecies. He fulfilled all of the prophecies, hundreds of them. And the fulfillment of these things, it happened in plain sight. And they were recorded for us by eyewitnesses, and they were faithfully passed down through the generations. The prophetic evidence presents a strong case for the reliability of the Bible. One more evidence, and this evidence I'm calling the reasonable evidence. This evidence speaks to the argument that the Bible is just a bunch of of made-up stories, fairy tales, as some would say. And last week, if you were with us, you'll remember that uh, Paul talked about C.S. Lewis's famous liar, lunatic, or Lord argument. That you've got to pick one with the claims of Jesus. He was either a liar, or he was a lunatic, or he really was the Lord. Well, over time, one other option has come into play. And it is that the, the story of Jesus is simply a legend. That either Jesus never existed at all, and the whole thing is made up, or that the stories that are told about him are just a legend. It never really happened. But the Bible just doesn't read like a legend. I mean, the heroes that we read about in Greek mythology, they're always so exaggerated in power and in virtue that it's obviously made up. It's obviously imagined, but not so with the people found in the Bible. I mean, think about some of the Bible's main characters. Noah had a drinking problem. Abraham was a liar. David committed adultery and then had, an, uh, had the, the husband of the woman he committed adultery with had him murdered to cover up his adultery. Peter, who, who Jesus said would be the rock, you know, the, the one the church would be built on, he denied Jesus. And it just doesn't read like a, a legend. There's an authenticity about the Bible because it includes not only, you know, the, the high points of a person's life, but, but also their low points. And while many skeptics say that, that the stories of Jesus were simply fabricated by his disciples, you, you have to ask why. Why would the New Testament writers make all of this up? Like, what would they have to gain? I mean, promoting these stories of Jesus didn't play out to their advantage at all. In fact, they suffered great persecution because of their claims about Jesus. Think about the Apostle Paul. Paul had built great respect and great influence for himself as a Jewish leader. And yet he gave all of that up to follow Jesus. And was, he was ultimately beheaded for his beliefs. Why would he do that? Why would he give all of that up? And we heard last week that 10 of the 12 apostles were put to death for their faith. It's unreasonable to believe that they all died for a lie, especially when you consider the ways in which they were put to death. 
I mean, it becomes even harder to believe that they made this up when you realize that, that some of them were run through with swords or spears, that, that some of them were, were burned alive or, or skinned alive. Some of them were crucified. I mean, these were horrific ways to die. And, and any of them could have avoided all of it by simply recanting and saying, you know what, it's all a lie. But listen, not one of them did. Not a single one of them did. What could have possibly motivated that kind of resolve? Well, Peter tells us when he writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says, listen, we didn't make this up. There wasn't a, a meeting in a dark room somewhere where we organized all the details and, and figured out exactly how we were going to tell it. No, he says, we saw it with our own eyes. We saw Jesus come, and he did all of the things that the prophets said he would do. He healed the sick. He gave the deaf back their hearing. He, we even saw him raise people back to life. And we were with him the night they arrested him. And we saw his body bloodied and bruised, hanging on the cross, crucified. And the spear they stuck in his side proved that his death was no lie. But then get this, three days later, we saw him again, as alive as he had ever been. And it wasn't just a couple of us. No, we, we all saw him. In fact, he was with us for 40 days in his resurrected body. Hundreds of people saw him. Many of those people are still alive. Don't believe me? Go and ask them. So you can abuse me, you can torture me, you can take my life from me, but know this, I am never going to recant my story because it's not a lie. It's the truth, and I know it's the truth because I saw it with my own eyes. The only explanation that makes any sense of the way these men died and the only reasonable explanation is that it was all true. Every word they wrote, carried along by the Holy Spirit of God, was reliable and true. And you know, the fact of the matter is we have barely scratched the surface today when it comes to the evidences that this book is reliable. And in overtime today, I'm actually going to share one more evidence. I hope you can join us for that. We're going to share several resources for those of you who want to study more. But listen, this is what I want to leave you with today. For the last five weeks, we've, we've been inviting you to engage with Pascal's wager, to pray a prayer that would say, God, if you're real, make yourself real to me. And we've heard from a number of you that you've prayed that prayer, that you're asking God to reveal himself to you. And while I believe that God can do that any way that he wants to, the number one way that God reveals himself to us is through this book. It's through his word. So if you are asking God to make himself real to you, the best next thing you can do is open up this book and read it. If you don't know where to start, I want to suggest Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. And as you read it, I'm praying that you will come to see and come to understand that the son in the story is you, and he's me, and he's all of humanity. And the father in the story represents God. And that when the son ran away with his father's money to, to live a life of pleasure and a, a life of sin, and he eventually found himself just empty-handed at the end of his rope, nowhere to turn, that he recognized that his father had all of these riches that were, would be available to him. And that 
the father, as he saw his son coming back to him, that he stretched his arms wide open. And they were the same arms that were nailed to the cross to pay the consequence for my sin and for yours. And that the father offers us his embrace, an invitation back into his family. And that's the story of the entire Bible. Again, it's God's gracious offering of redemption to fallen mankind through his son, Jesus Christ. And when you repent and believe, that gift is given to you. That's what you'll find in these pages. So if you're asking God to reveal himself to you, it starts with reading this book, his love letter to humanity. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, I am so thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the way that it reveals your heart and your character and your love for your creation. To the fact, Lord, that when we were dead in our sins, that you made us alive through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for my my friends who are, are praying that prayer. God, if you're real, make yourself real to me, Lord, that as they open the pages of this book, that they would find that it is indeed alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, Father, that it would judge the, the heart and the motive of those who read it, God, and that they would turn their heart to you. Lord, thank you so much for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen.